I like to come to this lake to think whenever I need to take a step back in life I come here <sighs> it's beautiful my name is Detective Allen I've been a detective for more years than I can remember the years have passed like an hourglass little by little until you realize you're running out of time it happens faster than you think hell I'm running on knee I guess you can't change life it is what it is at least that's what they say it's funny when you join the force you think I'm gonna be able to change lives help the good fight we also learn the worst about humanity. They're getting close, and you see the filth that society rejects. Oftentimes, you go places, places you never wanted to be. Most of us look away or try to hide the fact that bad people are out there. It's my job to stare evil straight in the eye. I've seen things you couldn't imagine. I've witnessed things that would make a grown man cry. I'm half surprised I don't keep my family locked up inside the house, safe from the chaos that lies just outside our front door. That would be the smart thing to do, because trust me, there are sick people out there, more than you'd want to believe. But you have to block it out. The world ain't all doom and gloom. You have to remember to separate your life on the job and your life on the outside. Many of us on the force have wives, children, elderly parents that need care. You have to keep each part of your world separate. Or it could drive you mad. At least, that's what I thought. That's what I believed. Until this case. Circular Logic Studios presents A Phil Interrupted Production Hunting a Killer Let me start from the beginning. I had only recently joined the Philadelphia FBI office. I'm still getting used to the area and its culture. 
Coming from across the country, coast to coast, Philadelphia is a bigger area than I was used to. But I did find a nice lake to think and reflect at. It's important to stay grounded in this line of work. The move and job change has been life-changing. But what doesn't change? Human nature. Criminals. I was informed by my new boss about a cold case. My ears perked up. A cold case? It's never too cold for me. I knew asking Detective Allen to assist me on this case would be no easy feat. He was new to the Bureau, despite having many years as a homicide investigator in Seattle, and coming to us with many high recommendations, I still had my doubts. I thought I would be generous and give him a chance to prove himself as an asset to us. After I initially reviewed the package sent to the Bureau from the Listening Friends of America, I offered Detective Allen to take the lead on this case, with my supervision of course. Before you say anything about my boss being a woman, come on, it's 2018. And sure, she got some slack behind her back from the boys at first, I heard, but she's proven time and time again to be the most talented mind we have. You might think I wouldn't want to work so closely with my boss on this case, but I don't mind. She's quite a looker. Special Agent Jessica has amazing intuition, an uncanny knack for problem-solving, and a keen sense of observing the smallest details. She's the best I've ever seen, and I'm talking about more than just her curves. Every detective wants to think they are able to figure it all out. I've hit a few home runs in my time, but nothing compared to my boss. I'll even go as far to say, she's a better detective than me. That's right, I can admit it. You gotta call a spade a spade when you see one. Now, on to our case. Listening Friends of America. I had never heard of it before. It's a service that allows you to become pen pals with a person in prison, a hospital, a hospice, a mental hospital, or something of that nature. It's a way of letting someone communicate who has no one else to speak with. They say it can be a great benefit for the individual to feel connected to another human, as often these people have no one else. I'd have called it all a bunch of BS if you ask me but we received a piece of mail that included numerous items from listening friends of America. Enclosed were news articles, stationery, various items, and letters. We will share with you every piece of evidence we received, and I will read to you the letter from our friend. But let's not get ahead of ourselves just yet. We received a welcoming letter from the vice president of the Darlington, Virginia campus of Listening Friends for America. His name is George Madsen. His letter explained a little bit about the program and what we can expect. Here is his letter. Dear listening friend, 
Thank you for joining our community, and welcome to Listening Friends of America. We at LFOA are excited and grateful to have you in our community, and we appreciate all of our volunteers' support for the thousands of isolated men and women living in prisons, hospitals, hospices, and psychiatric wards across the country. As you know, many people, through whatever circumstances, live their lives without any available shoulder to cry on or a friend to confide in. You will provide an immeasurable emotional support for someone with a story to tell and no one to listen. Rest assured, your privacy and safety are among our top concerns. Each package you receive from a friend will be inspected for hazardous materials, and any deliberate attempts to cause you harm will be removed, and your friend will be reassigned. In addition, scanners and software will identify keywords in any written correspondence and flag offending documents. However, no one in our Safety and Privacy Assurance Office will read unflagged documents out of consideration for the privacy our work demands. If you do happen to read anything detailing illegal conduct, you are under no such obligation and are encouraged to contact local law enforcement. Flagged documents may be removed from any packages, and after multiple flags, your friend will be reassigned. Again, thank you for your time. You are about to make a difference in someone's life and begin a very unique and special relationship. Listen well, your friend believes in you. Sincerely, George Madsen, Vice President and Chief Welcoming Agent, Listening Friends of America, www.listeningfriendsofamerica.org. The first thing we took from this rather routine letter was the need for George Madsen to explain repeatedly what procedures would be taken if the friend overstepped boundaries. This put it in the back of our minds that perhaps George Madsen would cut off our contact if he deemed something in the letters from our friend to be inappropriate or even knowledge possibly he didn't want getting out. Other than that, the letter appeared non-suspicious and we took it mostly at face value. However, we decided to be thorough about every facet of this case, so we dug into George Madsen's history. Of the information we discovered, this small passage from the Listening to Friends Facebook page shed the most light on him. Staff Spotlight, VP at Darlington. George Madsen came to the Listening Friends of America 15 years ago as an unproven, energetic young man who believed wholeheartedly in the mission of the organization. With an extensive education in psychology and psychopharmacology, George helped to establish Darlington at the forefront of cutting-edge treatments for our patients. Many of these treatments are continually in use at our facilities nationwide. George proved himself quite early on to be a leader and a true friend of all of us. He rose quickly among the ranks of LFOA, and the position of Vice President was created specifically for him so that he could cut through bureaucratic tape more easily and efficiently at Darlington. Just a few years after turning Darlington from a satellite campus into our flagship facility, George married his high school sweetheart right here on the facility grounds. The couple currently have a young son, and the happy family continues to inspire all of us here at Listening Friends of America with their optimism and compassion. Special Agent Jessica and I jotted down some notes from this post that we found interesting. George Madsen had been with the company for over 15 years. 
He has degrees in psychology and psychopharmacology. He has cutting-edge treatments for patients. The position of Vice President at the Darlington campus was made specifically for him, and it cut through bureaucratic red tape. While these observations aren't damning alone in any way, shape, or fashion, the observations are, however, something to make note of moving forward. This seems like a good time to introduce you to our listening friends of America, Pen Pal. His name is John William James. This is his unnerving correspondence. My dearest friend, I first and foremost wish to express my gratitude to you for agreeing to receive my letters. Strangely, though we have not yet met, I feel a friendship growing between us with every keystroke. I do not address you as a friend in reference to our intermediaries, but rather because I see you already in this light. It can be difficult to be alone. The click and ding of this machine is not unlike the slow and irregular heart beating of a weary heart. If I only was allowed a pen. I can only assume that by your apparent interest in what a forgotten old man may write to you is that you are of a curious nature. In this regard, we are quite similar. I find my own curiosity nearly insatiable. I have developed in my own time a certain taste for the bittersweet chaos that inevitably ensues. Do you know this craving? Does it flow through you as it does through me? You may think your own curiosity to be more subdued, And in truth, I once felt the same way. It was only through meditative reflection on a lifetime of little, seemingly insignificant leaks of my curious spirit into the world that I realized something vital to my being. The leaky pipe carries more water. Unfortunately for me, to the majority of those behind desks making decisions, breaks and leaks are more likely to show depression, to last decades, and perhaps a century. But you and I know it is more than that. It is the feeling of longing for that roast of the knowledge upon which those only with our curious hunger may feast. It is the thrill of the hunt. And what is it a hunter does? A hunter stalks his prey. He gets inside its head. He knows the prey. He understands its behaviors. The best hunters commune with their quarry. They respect it, and perhaps even love it. But for a hunter to refine his skill, he must learn from his prey. He accepts that there are things he does not know. Perhaps he never will. But he craves the knowledge. Do you do this, my friend? Do you think I know something? You must or you would not have chosen to become engaged in this discourse we now share. Perhaps I do know something, or I could know nothing of any value. If I did, I would only give my secret to someone clever enough and curious enough to hunt for it. 
I do hope you prove to be such a friend to me. It can be difficult to be alone. I feel the great weight of isolation upon me. Will you help dig me out? Always, John William James. Is this letter a rant of a madman? Perhaps. Is this the letter of a lonely man? I don't know. Is it a rant of a criminal? Not sure. Is he just reaching out for help? I'm not sure what John William James is looking for yet. At the very least, he's reaching out for someone to pick his brain. He talks of a weary heart, curiosity, and a hunter stalking his prey. These are generally not the words of an innocent man. Along with his strange letter to us, John William James also sent us other items which share some similarities to his letter. At this point, you may be wondering what crime has actually occurred. Why are we even digging into this case? This next article that John William James included, we believe, is at the heart of our case. We received an article clipping taken from a newspaper with the date September 30th, 1967. Body Found on Weiss Island by Chad Birmington, staff writer, Lancaster. The body of a woman was discovered washed ashore on Weiss Island by recreational boaters yesterday evening. I thought she might have been some woman who maybe got lost or swam out there and fell asleep, said Daniel Smith, the boater who informed the authorities. Jane Doe was discovered without any form of identification. According to this reporter's police source, however, there was a mark on her wrist that suggested she could have been wearing some kind of bracelet. The woman, though, was clothed in a thin gown and had several stab wounds, bruising, and a Y incision. This type of incision is the same made during an autopsy. According to the medical examiner's office, the woman had been dead at least 36 hours prior to her discovery on the small island in the Susquehanna River. Police have said they will be conducting an internal review of their policies regarding cadavers. The word around the office is we think this was some Jane Doe who were already investigating, or maybe the investigation's already done, said the source. Now we have to make sure that if we transport bodies for research or whatever it is they do, that we do it in a more secure way. We definitely don't want this happening again. Calls to nearby hospitals confirmed that no patients had gone missing during the past week. A worker at one institution, the O'Brien Asylum, reached out to this reporter to highlight a rumor there was a woman murdered. The informant remained anonymous, and a follow-up call to the asylum revealed that there was an unauthorized call made from inside one of the patient common areas. Given the nature of the institution, it does not seem likely that the phone call carried with it any merit. It appears that the larger story here is not the fate of the Jane Doe, but rather the diligence of our local safety and health institutions. Upon review, Special Agent Jessica and I immediately became alerted at the mention of questionable police work. The word around the office is we think this was some Jane Doe 
who are already investigating, or maybe the investigation is already done. Jess and I looked at each other when we read that. It is not standard police procedure to lose bodies and to confuse active and closed investigations. I hate to say it, but it potentially reeks of misconduct on some level. We don't want to jump the gun, but we want to stay open-minded as well. The facts are this. Jane Doe had no ID on her, had a mark on her wrist suggesting a bracelet, was clothed in a thin gown, had stab wounds and bruises, as well as the Y-cut incision commonly performed during an autopsy. This leads us to believe this woman was probably murdered in addition had an autopsy performed on her. Then how did her body end up on Weiss Island outside of Lancaster, Pennsylvania? Was this woman a patient at the O'Brien Asylum mentioned in the article? Who was the person that made that anonymous phone call? Was it John William James? There's not enough information to put all the pieces together. On the back of this newspaper clipping is another article about an endangered cat terrorizes local housewife. My boss and I do not believe this article has any relevance to our case. However, there were strange numbers scribbled in handwriting near the bottom. 3 slash 4, 18 slash 2, 21 slash 8, 27 slash 5, 25 slash 13, and so on and so on. These numbers appeared to be random, without any importance, but Jess quickly took the lead on this one. You could see the fireworks going off inside her head as she began to work out a theory on what the random number combinations may mean. She took the article about Jane Doe and began to count off columns and words. I sat confused by her actions, yet intrigued by her intelligence. She's up to something, I thought. Damn good detective. Within minutes, she showed me her progress. The first set of numbers were 3 slash 4. She went to the third sentence and then over four words to find the word I. Then the next set of numbers was 18 slash 2. This corresponded to the word have, and she continued on and on. She solved it. I'll be damned, I thought. The first number was the sentence row, and the word was the second. When she completed transcribing, she discovered a secret message. The message read, I have already confirmed we will be bodies of merit and diligence. I will read that again. I have already confirmed we will be bodies of merit and diligence. We took time to digest the words in front of us. Is this a vague, disguised reference to someone in power? Military? Police, perhaps? At this point, we're not sure what the strange cryptid message means, but very clearly, the numbers correspond with the article, and John William James is trying to tell us something. In addition, we received a piece of stationery 
something like a postcard with a swan illustration on it. The words, The Swan, read below the drawing. We also found a small paper cup that was flattened. It appears to be a cup used for medicine distribution. The forensic lab showed it clear of any residue or fingerprints. Our best guess at this point is this is a medicine cup used at a mental health facility. Why it was included remains a mystery. Another newspaper clipping was included with our letter from John William James. It was photocopied and of poor quality. The font was extremely tiny and proved difficult to read. Strangely, there were 24 words blacked out, making them illegible. Why would certain words intentionally be blacked out? I will read to you the contents of this article. Sinkhole highlights challenges of preventing detecting infrastructure failings by blank dance contact reporter blank July 10th 2016 when a sinkhole cratered blank from one sidewalk to the other last week there was no telling how long it had been growing where might similar disasters be waiting to happen city public officials say they are stepping up efforts to find out but acknowledge they can't prevent them all Transportation officials, meanwhile, couldn't say how widespread similar problems might be. A leak in an 8-inch water pipe feeding a single property on Mulberry caused a 30-foot-deep sinkhole to open up between blank and blank streets on 4th of July. It was the city's latest infrastructure failure, following breaks in city-owned water and sewer mains on blank in blank last month and blank in blank blank in April. It went undetected because that section of what is a major west-to-east artery across downtown is paved with concrete. While more durable than asphalt, concrete is also less prone to showing signs of trouble beneath it. Underscoring the difficulty of noticing such issues before they become major problems, public work crews did not notice any leak under the roadway even as they replaced a water main under the same stretch of road last month. You use a certain amount of judgment, spokesman blank said of the city efforts to root out fragile or broken pipes. In this case, the water main was a higher priority than blank because it blank to more customers. The city has contracts with several companies to scan its water system for vulnerabilities using electromagnetic, acoustic, or video probes, blank said. Officials factor in a pipe's age, material, and any history of breaks to prioritize it for inspection, he said. The officials have helped reduce the number of water main breaks in the city by almost 40% this fiscal year 2014, though they still numbered almost 800 in the fiscal year that ended on June 30th, occurring more than twice a day on average. The department aims to repair or replace 15 miles of water mains each year, and they finished 19 miles of mains this last fiscal year. It's not a perfect science, Blank said. You cannot do 4,000 miles of pipes all at once. If blank do occur, they blank easier to detect beneath asphalt than under concrete, engineers said. It's like covering a hole with a blanket versus a piece of plywood. The asphalt is blank blank if not allow water to bubble up. City transportation spokeswoman blank could not say how many miles of city roads are paved with concrete 
nor why the material is used on some roads and not on others. Engineer said it is designed blank while asphalt requires more frequent maintenance. That section of blank likely has been paved with the same concrete slabs for at least 50 years, blank, blank said. That was the standard practice back in those days, she said. The blank sinkhole is expected to take weeks to repair and refill. The article at first glance seemed unrelated and of no use to us aside from the interesting blacked out words. Maybe we're looking too hard into small things. Maybe not. With a case like this, you can't leave any option unexplored. It takes deep searching, and with a little bit of luck, one of these leads will pan out. I took this news article with the blacked out words to be my personal mission to solve. Special Agent Jess focused on another piece of evidence, which we will get to soon, as I attempted to solve this riddle myself. I slaved over every word looking for correlations and any clues. What were these blacked out words? Most of the erased words looked to be people's names. Was this an attempt to hide identities from us? I admit I spent a great deal of time with this article. Sleepless nights, hours of grueling study. The article went with me everywhere I went. No such luck. I hit a dead end. I had Special Agent Jess take a look. She said, Have you done a Google search? <sighs> no. With a few keystrokes and a Google search, Jess found the article online in its original unredacted form. Impressive. We discovered the article was from the Baltimore Sun, written by Scott Dance. Some of the streets that were blacked out included Mulberry Street, Green, Paca, York Road, and Center Street. Towns that were also erased were Cockeysville and Mount Vernon. We were also able to figure out the two blacked out names, Kurt Kosher and Adrian Barnes. We were also shocked to notice some striking similarities between John William James' writing and some that were found in this unedited article. The leaky pipe carries more water, and the line breaks and leaks are more likely to show a depression, as well as this line, perhaps a century. Those phrases may sound familiar. In his letter, John wrote, The leaky pipe carries more water. The exact same words are in the article. He also wrote in his letter, Breaks and leaks are more likely to show depression. Same sentence is used in the news article. Perhaps a century. Once again, same words written the same way. His usage of such words forced us to keep open the idea that it's possible he worked for either a private company or was a public city worker with related experience to waterworks. Like I said, mostly names and streets were eliminated in our copy from John William James. Why? It's too early to tell.
Now, the Darlington, Maryland facility is 45 minutes away. That's about 32 miles from where Jane Doe's body was found on Weiss Island in the Susquehanna River in 1967. And the Darlington campus is roughly 55 minutes, about 41 miles from Baltimore. So from Baltimore to where the body was found is two hours, give or take. This is certainly a small enough area for a homicide to occur with a body dump. The suspect would clearly have thought they dropped the victim off far enough away to muster no suspicion. This is purely a hunch at this point, as we do not have evidence the killer or victim were from these areas. Is the O'Brien Asylum mentioned in the newspaper article now the Darlington facility? What is our victim's identity? How did this happen to her? There are so many questions, and so few answers. My boss, Special Agent Jess, continued unlocking intriguing clues to this case. She next hacked into the Listening for Friends of America website and found the employee that reviewed the items John William James sent to us. She brilliantly cracked passwords and uncovered an interesting report. It was written by employee Rachel Scallion. The report was titled, Inspector Inventory Sheet, Darlington, Maryland, Patient Name James, Patient Number 1618. It listed the 11 items we received with her description and notes on each such item. It reads as follows. Listening Friends of America, Inspector Rachel Scallion. Item number one, LFOA welcome letter. Comment, untampered. Item number two, patient letter. Comment. Patient does not reveal any sensitive information. Letter is typed. Patient is under Sharps free supervision. Item number three. Medicine cup crushed. Comments. Patient included for unknown reasons. No residue. Safe. Item number four. Small section of nylon string. Comment. Request security to ensure proper locks on music room. Item 5. Picture card of Swan. Comment. Image copied from book in library. Patient made card in arts and crafts. Patient seems to be focusing on Swans recently. Item 6. Star chart. Comment. Another image copied and printed in arts and crafts. No idea why he chose those particular constellations. Item 7. Article. Comment. Certain words and phrases redacted. Item 8. Article 2. Comment. Older clipping. Subject matter borderline. Not harmful. Random numbers written on one side. As noted on the inventory sheet... She said the patient is under a Sharps free supervision. James wrote in his letter to us he wishes he were allowed a pen. 
there is a request to security to ensure proper locks were placed on the music room. The caseworker mentions the older clipping subject matter borderline. Not harmful, random numbers written on one side. These numbers, as we found out, were anything but random. They revealed a secret message. And Special Agent Jess and I believe that this Jane Doe is at the heart of our investigation. Maybe she is the center of a potential cover-up. But finding out her identity remains paramount to our success in solving this case. She deserves to be recognized as a person with a name and life. A life that was taken from her so long ago. She deserves justice and we intend on getting it for her. Special Agent Jess cracked yet again another interesting possible lead after she instantly solved my portion of the case. John William James included a postcard of nighttime sky constellations, as mentioned in the inventory sheet report. There wasn't much to gather from this picture of the skies, or so we thought. We soon discovered on the back of this nighttime star chart was an attached piece of nylon. What the hell was this, I thought. It appeared to be a small, thin piece of plastic or nylon taped to the back of the star chart. It measured approximately one to two inches in length. Could there possibly be any link between these pieces of evidence? Special Agent Jess proved once again why she's the best detective and leader in our unit. Here's how she did it. Detective Allen needed my assistance, yet again, with another puzzle. Whose case is this again? As if I don't have enough on my plate already? Anyways, Detective Allen could not find a link with the Constellation chart. I knew it was sent to us for a reason. There had to be a link. Instead of just staring at it for hours on end, I decided to search the names of the constellations themselves to see if there was something hidden within those names. Draco, Cygnus, Lacerta, upon many others. Boy, did I freshen up on my Greek mythology. Turns out, Cygnus is Greek for swan. Bingo. I knew there was something behind that map. After hitting a bit of a mental block, I became increasingly curious to know what book that image of the swan was photocopied from. So I dug even deeper. I researched our libraries and internet sources, much like I did when Detective Allen couldn't find anything in regard to the redacted article he was working on. And lo and behold, I found it. No surprise here. Puzzles were my kind of thing. Infant's Cabinet of Birds and Beasts from 1820. I thought it was interesting that on the same page as the swan, there was a photo of a vulture. Could this be linked to the case as well? I went back to the constellation map. While fingering the nylon strand, I let my thoughts run wild. Music room? What could the music room possibly have anything to do with this? I decided to think outside the box 
and look up different constellations surrounding Cygnus that were possibly missing from the map he sent to us. Something had to link this all together. I then stumbled across Lyra, which is represented as a vulture carrying a lyre. Furthering my research, I discovered that lyre is a stringed instrument, similar to a harp. Whoa, could the nylon strand be from a harp, suggesting the relation of Lyra to Cygnus? Should I give this information to Detective Allen to see how he can implement all of this with the case? Eh, Greek mythology? A story of a love affair and manipulation between Zeus and Leda and the heartbreaking story of Orpheus and his lyre left to a man to interpret? <laughs> I think I'll keep this portion of the case to myself. Trying to explain all of this would be similar to talking to a wall. She's a piece of work, isn't she? A sarcastic, beautiful genius. And my boss. I gotta remember that. You know, the way she looks over the evidence and how she thinks outside the box, it's incredible. The woman covers every possible angle, and that can only help us during this investigation. I'm not sure what it all means yet. I do know that my partner and I are onto something. Someone dumped her body into the Susquehanna River or placed her body on Weiss Island. Someone is responsible for this murder. We don't even know her name yet. John William James, the man who sent us the letter, he gave us clues to a mystery. Is he the one ultimately responsible for the woman's death? Or is he trying to communicate to us who the killer is through a series of clues? New evidence soon could just break this case wide open. Finding out the truth will be like putting together a puzzle. One small step at a time. Piece by piece until the picture makes sense. We have to dig deeper and never give up hope. There is something going on here that isn't adding up. Something looms over this case. But I can't put my finger on it. Corruption? Cover-up? I'm not sure yet. But one thing I can tell you is this. We will never yield. We will never waver. We will never stop hunting a killer. This has been a Circular Logic Studios presentation. Hunting a Killer is produced, written, and performed by Phil and Jessica Allen. Editing by Phil Allen. Based on Hunt a Killer. <laughs>